Welcome back, everyone, and it's 4 o'clock B-time here at the Prole Hive. We are not hanging out in a Prole Hive. That sounds pretty terrible. You sound like the uh, that like shock jock from Wet Hot American Summer. The like B-themed shock jock. Yeah, I don't, I don't love that. Um, what are we talking about today, Elliot? Okay, so I believe we've lined it up with your favorite, sometimes striped, and your especially favorite, Fuzzy Brown, Buzzy Boys. The Fuzzy Boys. After Fuzzy Boys, of course, is Wuzzy Boys. Yeah, and I have nothing to follow that up with. Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bee. Fuzzy Buzzy had to pee. Fuzzy Wuzzy in the winter. I I, I was going to do, there's actually something there, but I don't know what it is. About how bees can't leave the hive in the winter and they have to pee really bad. So then there's like a warm spell and they all go and piss and shit outside. We can come back in. I I was going to go with Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bee, worked all day to make honey. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. 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 Sorry, guys. Sorry. Sorry. Do bees pee? Um, Plicking flowers and royal jelly. Well, I mean, they don't pee. They're like other things that like it all comes out as one release. Okay, like a bird. Yeah. Do bees uh, have cloacas? What the fuck are we talking about? Do what they is have this? A vent? Well, that's the another frog? episode. <laughs> yeah, we we may or may not cover that. Even though this is the bee genetics episode, that is not the genetics we care about for today. Well, when are we dropping the bee anatomy episode? Yeah, we're not going to argue about what bathroom they use. This is ridiculous. We're a minute in. First off, the anatomy episode. Uh-huh. First off. All right. Anyways, now that I've killed the vibe. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the fact that like honeybees are not native to basically wherever anyone listening to this is from. And um, we all know, I think, based on like the news cycle that like honeybees die pretty easily, especially, like I said, those domesticated ones that we all are familiar with. So um, raises a really important question. What can we do about it? To figure that answer out, Elliot, we've got to go way back in time, way back to the last Ice Age. My good God, this guy with his time outside of time. Why do we always have to go back so far? Right, He doesn't like even ease you into it. It's just right off the bat, like prehistory. Like there it is. Right. You know what? It's important this time. It's not about the squirrel. Like, this is real, real shit today. We're going in deep. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Yes, the Ice Age squirrel was the only one that just sticks out. Well, he was a good friend. We spent, we we got a lot of mileage out of that squirrel. We did. I don't even remember his name. No credit there. None. None. Seriously, going back to the, the last Ice Age, given that the world was mostly covered in ice... Honeybees couldn't survive in most of the world, right? What they did is during, as this glaciation period happened, they moved south, right? So like bees that lived in like Germany migrated south. For European honeybees, which is like what most of our honeybee stock comes from, they generally settled in like one of four different regions. Those regions are all kind of like lined out or carved out by like mountain ranges. So like the Iberian range, uh, the Balkan range, the Greek range, and the Italian range. Now, these regions themselves aren't particularly important, but what is important is to know that as breeding took place in these isolated conditions, things like mutations occurred, and these mutations led to different subspecies of honeybees that are evolved for those local conditions. Now, we're talking about millions of years. While many of those mutations didn't survive, the ones that did ultimately led to the the traits that we see today in these different honeybee subspecies. Now, Elliot... What's different about Iberia compared to, like, the rest of those areas? 
Uh, better be healthcare. Well, that's fair. I don't know about be healthcare, but like healthcare, yeah. Uh, but geographically speaking, mountains. So yeah, like out of those regions I just talked about, Iberia is the one that's comparatively flat. So what that means is, as that ice age receded, those were the bees that were able to quickly work their way up into northern Europe far before the others could, having to go over like the Alps or whatever it might be. Now, these bees crossbred with other various non-honeybees in the region, creating what's now known kind of as the dark European honeybee. Further, uh, honeybees from like northern Africa were able to cross the Strait of Gibraltar and cross with those bees which were already there, which led to what is now known as like the Spanish honeybee. So bees don't really have a migration season then. They just head out looking for new hives based on the population's needs and the new climate and geographical factors in these areas steered them towards these places that resulted in new genetic variances. Yeah, basically, you know, the hives, when there's swarms and things, they go find a new a new place to survive and they just kind of crawled their way season by season across these landscapes, whereas before they would have butted against temperatures that were just too cold. So that's a bit of the backdrop here when we're talking about bee genetics. Now, if we look at the environments that these bees lived within, we can figure out a lot of things. One of the things we've talked about in this entire show, uh, specifically the Prol Model series, we know that most of the landscapes across Europe were wooded or lightly wooded like 8,000, 10,000 years ago. Human impact, for example, was framed within subsistence, and for the most part, things like beekeeping weren't really like a thing that they did. Now, the honeybees that existed there lived in tree cavities. They weren't cared for in skeps or hives or anything like that. They were just thought of something that's a part of the landscape. And because of that, only the best bee colonies survived to swarm and uh, continue to reproduce. So did people just find beehives and they were brave enough to try to get some honey? Or I mean, they didn't keep or raise bees. Did they know they had delicious treasure in those hives at the time? When did, when did people start eating honey? I don't know. Do they just like go for it? Because like, personally, I feel like I don't need honey that bad. Like hundreds of bees things versus like, you know. A scoop of that squishy good? No, no, <laughs> Jesus, no. Never again. Oh, boy. You refer to honey. As that squishy good? You just did it again. I did it. So to answer your question, Elliot, they'll swarm and they'll leave some bees behind in the hive. And depending on the time of year when they swarm, the new hive might not have enough time to build up a full store of honey. The hive that's there might not be healthy enough to take care of it. And eventually there's going to be vacant beehives that are full of honey. So that's probably where most honey traditionally came from, is taking advantage of these basically vacant hives that are full of honey. But to get back to this idea of the swarming, the reason I'm bringing this up is that for hives to continue to exist if they only last for so long, annual swarms are really important to cause those populations to stay stable or grow. But ultimately, like it can't grow indefinitely, right? So it's not sustainable for there to be continuous swarms and for these hives to continue to just grow, right? So like a third of these hives probably didn't make it. So what you're saying, it's, it's not easy being bees Yeah, no, it's, it's not easy trying to make puns off of every bee thing you can think of, <laughs> as you guys are finding out. And we're only like halfway through this series. So, um, it gets worse. It gets, gets so worse. much worse. You guys don't Just even Just like know. our timeline, it gets worse. Like everything poor proles related, it gets worse. That's our new tagline. I think that's a good bumper sticker. Just like, it's going to get worse. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's going to get worse. Eat you damn honey. doomers. <laughs> so today we're going to learn some fun biology about bees. So, Elliot, today you're going to find out that queens are diploids, meaning that they carry chromosomes from their mother as well as uh, their father, which is uh, a drone. So, not haploid, like a gamete. No. So, queens are basically like egg factories. So, you know, like you see the cartoons on TV and the queen's like huge and like she's just basically giving birth nonstop, right? She's usually like in a big cartoon bed. Well, she's not actually in like a bed, obviously. Don't know why I had felt the need to say that. And she's not that much bigger than the other bees as they show her like in those cartoons where she's like the size of a thousand bees. She's like just slightly bigger. And these eggs that she lays are uh, a mix of those diploids, the, the worker bees with the two sets of chromosomes, and haploids, eggs with only one set of chromosomes for drones. Mixing the genetic code down for one set of chromosomes is done through a process called meiosis, which is where that genetic material is exchanged between both sets of chromosomes randomly. And more importantly, the two pairs of chromosomes are reduced to one. I know this is a little bit complicated if this sounds really foreign to you, but this is probably the most complex part of the whole episode. But most importantly here is that the chromosomes in the egg for drones aren't from the DNA of the drone the queen mated with, but the drone who is her father, and in fact, not her own DNA, but that of her mother. It's really hard to picture without Punnett squares. Um, we should probably do some of those for these beans, uh, for these beans, these bees, because I think that would make a pretty funny meme. So like, we'll get... We'll... Wait, 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 I got it. Beams. Bee memes. They're just beams. Jesus Christ, that's already a word, Andy. I think you got to see it Jet written. fuel can't melt steel beams. <laughs> means something totally different now. <laughs> oh, you got me, dude. That's good. That's funny. It's so stupid. It finally I landed. Uh, it only took, what did we say, 138 episodes? Yeah. We, we got there. Duh, it's, you it's made my me laugh, moment. son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. my God. No, good. but what are they, aren't they called Punnett squares for genetics no, you, and you stuff? You got it. Yeah, yeah, so we should totally make some of those because... Just uh, if you're a visual learner like me, that would probably help. I feel um, like the Punnett Square meme has definite potential. Oh, for sure. Um, so let's let me try to break this down here and put it into lay terms for people like me to understand. So she's birthing her genetic brothers, so to speak, is what you're saying with the with the drones, and then with the queens, they're more like not clones, but like sister clones. Yeah, they're, they're like they're more like, like they're more like twins. they're more like yeah they're more like siblings yeah. genetically is what I'm trying to say not like offspring yes. so it's like Game of Thrones but with bees yeah it's 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 pretty fucked and uh, you know the efforts that the genetics go through in order to share and reorganize these sections of chromosomes is really unique to bees and I mean that shouldn't be totally surprising right but it also makes sense when you think about it because we know that worker bees aren't they're not contributing to the genetic pool right. And uh, drones are basically like clones of the queen. So where would genetic diversity come from? It gets really messy, right? Because you rely on these drones and then you rely on queens because the other worker bees are not procreating. It comes from the variation and whatever, because it's making two sets of DNA, but only it's reduced down to one. So I guess that random reduction is what makes the genetics different, right? Well, that that's also what causes if there's incest for the hives to fall apart so quickly is because of how closely related the drones and the queens are. 
So it has to be from drones outside of that hive or the hive will immediately fall apart if it's an inbred situation, right? Hmm. And that makes sense because it's a really good way to, to force genetic diversity. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. So let's talk about these drones really quick, right? They come from unfertilized eggs, like, you know, how else would you get basically a sibling, right? Meaning that they only have one set of chromosomes, and that means there's no genetic variation like we just kind of talked about. One of the benefits of this is that there's no recessive traits to be carried. If there's any genetic weakness, it gets exposed really quickly, right? It can't be a recessive trait in that punit square. Now, this helps quickly filter out that genetic weakness. So, when a drone loves a queen... He gets taken to the brood chamber, milked for his genetic material, and all the breed bread he's worth, and then, like, some insects probably gets his head bit off. How close am I? It was basically accurate, except for all of it. Sorry. So, the mating process itself is called competitive polyandry. Okay, that makes sense. That's like many males competing for one female, right? Yeah, so mating takes place in the air in what's called a drone congregation area. And this will have up to 20,000 drones from over 200 colonies, going back to our conversation about the need for getting that drone diversity. And they'll be mating every 15 seconds. Now, out of those 20,000, the queen will mate with like 15 or so drones. And that sperm by all 15 drones will be used by the queen for the rest of her life. God damn, giving a whole new meaning to Postmates. Right. So out of a ton of drones, only a few mate, meaning theoretically only the strongest survive, but also it is kind of based on random chance of which drones happen to be there because 20,000 drones isn't like a whole lot out of 200 colonies. So there is a little bit of a weird mix of survival of the fittest and the just basically like random change. And I know that random change is called genetic drift. And the polycule is going to love this episode. Right. So having multiple fathers from this mating process does create basically like what you might want to call in the Game of Thrones world subfamilies within the hive, each slightly genetically distinct with the potential to behave and even look differently to the other subfamilies. And this is all in one hive, right? So beehives aren't New York City. There isn't like a Chinatown or whatever bees would call it when they self-segregate. Waxtown? Honey Ave? The Tri-B area. You know there's a main street. And listen, I apologize. I haven't brushed up on my bebonics. Bebonics. I, I don't know why I did that like as a sheep, but I don't know. Maybe that's how they vibrate a lot. So we'll go with that. Yeah. All of this really boils down to what you could encapsulate into like a colony level gene expression. Kind of like what you were talking about with New York City. So more than just bee color, but one nation, a bee race. Yeah, basically. I want to talk a little bit about how this happens, and that's through what's called quantitative trait loci, or what exact genes are causing this shit. So can you actually like selectively breed bees? Seems really hard. Yeah, you would think it's really hard, but that's kind of what we've done, but kind of accidentally at the same time. And uh, we're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Some things we've tried to do is to make bees more gentle, and that's something a lot of breeders will talk about is they're bees have been bred to be gentle. But like gentleness isn't really a concrete thing like when you're breeding pumpkins. Like is does this pumpkin have more sugar content? Yes or no? Oh uh, yeah, gentle polycule breeding. Exactly. It's not about breeding for whether or not Noah is gentle, but does he do the smaller things that create the better environment? Does he wash the dishes? Is he slow to attack? 
Does he instantly sting your ankles or face? Is he tolerant of ground vibrations? Uh, Andy, I think you're getting off track. I mean, maybe. You, you understood what I meant. I didn't. It's fine. Don't worry about it. The point is that there's a number of genes involved in these generally understood interests people have had when it comes to breeding their bees. Hygiene, for example, is in particular interest worth exploring further for what might be obvious mite-related reasons. The cure was hygienic once. You know what else was hygienic? Is it the quality bee-related products coming in the following ad? They're buzzing with excitement. They're the most hygienic. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Thanks for coming back. We're here and talking about keeping your polycule nice and healthy. No, we're not. Okay, fine. We're talking about the hive. The K-Hive. <laughs> Andy wants Kamala's black card taken. I mean, I do. Absolutely, I do. And we are getting way too close to this election. Holy shit, when this comes out, we might actually know if she's going to try to run for president. That's fucking frightening. Oh. Yeah. Cringe at that. We, we are talking about real hives, though, not the K-Hive. That is getting totally off track. Specifically, how genes are expressed into generally understood things like cleanliness, gentleness, foraging capability, and so on. But we can look at these traits and see that they break down into a number of pieces. Cleanliness doesn't just mean the bees themselves, but the hive, brood rearing, and so many more. Gotta have that Gene Simmons tongue to keep clean. Honestly shocked you know who that is. I know Gene Simmons. I saw him, uh, he was a guest on Scooby-Doo. I regret I said anything. Bean Simmons? No, that doesn't work. Anyways. Get it's close. on with the episode. <sighs> Okay, so it's not just one gene that controls all those specific traits, right? Get it, gene? Uh, take it. Researchers smarter than me looked at these things, too, and came to the same conclusion, or they came to that conclusion, and I agreed with them. In this process of trying to target these specific expressions or traits, their results were basically what you would expect if you have any background in statistics. 68% of colonies were okay at it, 14% were good or bad, 2% were excellent or awful. The 1% we need, not the 1% we deserve. Basically. Now, could we breed for that 1%? Sure. I bet you there's a but. Here comes a but. Like the queen bee, Beyonce, there sure is a but. Oh, man. Okay, yeah, all right. He, We're walking on thin it. ice in this episode. Yeah, well, listen, I, I got a real thick on Elliot early on, and now I'm whittling away at that. I was just going to say I'm nervous because my nose stopped bleeding. I think there's no more blood in my brain. <laughs> <sighs> if he's quiet, you'll know. He's just sleeping, recovering. So in order to breed for like a selective trait, you're going to have to like whittle down the gene pool really hard, right? Like If you're trying to get a very specific thing, if you're breeding for that, that 1%, and like you're breeding for one trait, 
that doesn't mean all traits, right? So being really good at mite resistance doesn't mean that they'll have all the other traits we want. Oftentimes, when you're shrinking that genetic diversity, you're also at higher risk of causing some of the other desirable traits to to be less likely. Yeah, this is basically like domestication in a nutshell. Yeah, one might say that is exactly a description of domestication in the last twelve thousand years in a nutshell. Yes, one might. Not even one might. We don't want mites. Yeah, no mites. No mites allowed. So let's step back a little bit on this, right? Oh my god, they just made another pun, but you have to read that one. <laughs> no, because I they... said might m i g h t, and they were saying might m i t e, and we just, you know what, guys? Homophones, man. Never ending fun. It's not. It's not good for an audio media, boys. We need to do better. I'm sorry to everyone. Hashtag do better. We'll start the trend. Is it do be, better? Well, is it, wait, hashtag be better. Is oh, it do? Oh, oh God, it's be bad. better, but it gets worse. It just keeps getting worse. <laughs> uh, that is, you know what? That is the new bumper sticker. Be better, but it gets worse. <laughs> all right, so let's let's step back a little bit. One thing you might recall from all of the stuff we've done so far is that hives have genetic diversity, right? Uh, right, from the great big orgy in the sky, otherwise known as heaven. The, f- the fly orgy, or also known as heaven. Yeah, but we're talking about bees, not flies. And yeah, whatever. So anyways, we can actually see this play out a bit. If you looked in a hive before, like we said, there's that genetics, those subfamilies. You might notice some of the bees look a little different. They might have like brighter stripes or something unique about them. You can't quite pinpoint what it is, but you can tell there's like, they look slightly different. These ones look slightly different. But the thing is, those subfamilies aren't just about aesthetics. It can also impact things like honeybee behaviors, including skill sets, whether it's hygiene or how they do the waggle dance and how it's understood. The what? The the waggle dances, you know, like the, the bees doing their little weird jiggy with it, like Will Smith style. Is this what your people call dancing? Yeah, th- this is like kind of hard to express in an audio medium. So I'm going to describe it for our viewers. Andy just like put his hands up and started like wiggling his body back and forth. Yes. With no rhythm for the record. None. Yeah. And I'm not sure if his hands are supposed to be his wings because bees don't have those. I don't even know what that was. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so that's theoretically what bees do. Bees don't have hands. No. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, that's that's a whole other project. Um, yeah, so I'm just basically like a shaking potato. It's fine. Nobody's going to deny that. Yeah, it was was like a shaking potato. Pretty embarrassing. Picture a shaking potato with hands. Yeah. Um, so I think we should probably turn, this is a good spot to turn the time over to our sponsors. Um, maybe Raytheon. They loved our commercial. And then we get missiles. Oh shit, yeah, let's drop that Raytheon commercial like a... Bomb? Yeah, that. Hey folks, thanks for listening. This is Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast so far, and right now I'm talking to you from a commercial in a Poor Pearls Almanac podcast. I'm sure you're enjoying the show and maybe even enjoying some of our ridiculous ads. We are able to keep our episodes ad-free and keep the lights on here because of support from listeners like you. If you think we're adding valuable perspective to the subjects of agriculture, ecology, climate change, and politics, then please consider giving us some support on Venmo, Ko-Fi, Patreon, or PayPal, all of which can be found at our website, poorproles.com. Please, don't make me go to Jeff for money. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Basil, Jeffrey 
All right. So while we were off air, I showed Ellie the the full uncut X-rated B-waggle dance. It's been yeah, it. it's been fifteen minutes. He loved it. After all the buildup, it's just a B in the air, and I don't get it. I don't understand what the difference is between the waggle dances and a bee just kind of hovering, doing its thing, whatever bees do. Yeah, so that's what they do, is they, they do the waggle. So, How much time did somebody have to study to notice that there's a difference in that kind of flight behavior? You know, there was a time when people appreciated the art of living, and I think when we started losing that appreciation is when we forgot how to look at the bees. I'm starting to think it was this motherfucker that made college so expensive. <laughs> it might have been. Uh, so here's the thing. The reason why that's important is the waggle dance is how bees tell their hive how to find honey. And like I said, based on that genetic lineage, the interpretation can be different. And that means you're giving the wrong directions, which isn't great. So they're programmed by their genetics. They're basically just uh, living out their genetic code. That's telling them to do these things. Yeah, I mean, basically they're, at least from what we understand, kind of taught very little. It's largely written in their genetics. Oh no. All I got was colonialism sunburn in this stupid t-shirt. Have you tried not colonizing places? Uh. <laughs> so I think the point is here that uh, this genetic variability, despite all these issues, is still really important to colony health. Uh, it sounds like there's like a component of risk though, right? Yeah, uh, in a sense, it, it absolutely does. I, I think we need to have a really good understanding of how these genetics work and to also understand that like, if diversity is a good thing, then even if this waggle dance issue uh, exists, that they can work around it, right? Otherwise, like diversity wouldn't be a good thing for them. What's also important is to remember a few episodes back when we talked about the life cycle of bees, that they don't just have like one job in their lives. And that rotation is really important because one of these jobs is something they're going to be really good at because of that subfamily component, right? They're all from different families with slowly different genetics. Inevitably, some of them are going to be better at one thing than the other. And the specialization is particularly important for efficiency and in unique situations when like maybe the colony needs to focus on one particular thing. Having those specialists step up instead of every worker allows the colony to basically provide a proportionate response to that new circumstance. Okay, so beyond the need for genetic variation and the fact that there's a component of risk where they have to go out and leave the hive and maybe adapt a little bit or find a new area to live in that kind of forces a change in genetics, you're also saying they specialize for efficiency, or this results in specialization for efficiency, but... I don't want to sound like a money-grubbing, must-loving capitalist here, but doesn't that sound a lot like a marketplace? It sounds more like a marketplace than uh, how Twitter has played out. But um, basically, you know, if we were to look at the history of bees and economics, honeybees were actually a huge inspiration for Adam Smith. The supposed, and I'll use the term really, really loosely here, father of capitalism. What is the fable of the bees? It's a poem that uh, came out like 20 years before Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations. Huh. And it's just basically about like bees and markets, basically, and like how they're... It's, it's interesting. It's, mm -hmm. I, I pulled the clip on the drive if you want to take a listen to it. All arts and crafts neglected lie, content the bane of industry, makes them admire their homely store, and neither seek nor covet more. So few in the vast hive remain, the hundredth part they can't maintain. 
against the insults of numerous foes, whom yet they valiantly oppose, till some well-fenced retreat is found, and here they die or stand their ground. No hireling in their armies known, but bravely fighting for their own, their courage and integrity at last were crowned with victory. They triumphed not without their cost, for many thousand bees were lost. Hardened with toils and exercise, they counted ease itself a vice, which so improved their temperance that, to avoid extravagance, they flew into a hollow tree, blessed with content and honesty. Okay, so fact check here, that was actually Bernard Mandeville's poem on bees, which was like 20 years earlier, but yeah, it did inspire Adam Smith. And I don't know, maybe we should do an episode on Adam Smith. He gets kind of a bad rap. He was anti-landlord, wasn't he? He was. Maybe we'll do an episode. Uh, just needs to, like, be food-related. Maybe we can, like, find a fruit named after him. You know, maybe a, a Smith kind of fruit. Kids are a human fruit. He had some of those. I hate the way that sounds for some reason. I think it's because I watched Pan's Labyrinth recently, and mm-hmm. the child eats the... Uh, yeah, you know what? Just... I don't know why that just brought up horrible visions. Thank you so much, Guillermo del Toro. Appreciate that. <laughs> Shout Thanks, <out>. Guillermo. <laughs> Do you think um, he listens? Do you think he's one of our listeners? Like, oh, honestly? absolutely. I hope so. Definitely. Yeah. Hi, Guillermo. Give us a review. Give us a, you have <laughs> make to a sign movie. it as you. Or yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah, make a movie and have, have our audio playing in the background nonstop. Never <laughs> explain it. That would be the scariest movie ever. I would finally watch a movie from him. I don't think I've seen Pan's Labyrinth. What? Oh, you're missing out. That movie's great. You'd love it. You keep saying that, and I keep not watching them. I have it. I'll just bring it over. It's great. It's a good movie. <laughs> oh, boy. Eat some, get... of those, eat some of those mushy mushies. <laughs> mm. What did I call it? Shit, I don't even remember anymore. The Squishy Good? Squishy Good. Oh, yeah. Was it Squishy Good? That's what you called Honey earlier, and oh, I yeah. fucking hated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can have some Squishy Good and uh, watch some Pan's Labyrinth. All right, sounds kind of like a good time. Okay, kind of glad I'm a few states away. Yeah. So we were talking about bees, right, and uh, self-regulation. Adam Smith. So we we could talk a bit about the the differences between markets and capitalism. That is, I think, a really actually important conversation to have, uh, and how markets can, in some cases, again, this is all kind of nuanced, reflect the concept of self-organization to an extent. But the the more correct comparison from Mandeville's poem would actually be around that latter term, the idea of self-organization. Bees modeled the ability of a community to self-organize, even when not given direct orders, but through understanding the needs of the community through tools like pheromones and so on, not by like some abstract ownership in a section of hives to make other bees work harder so a one can like have a fucking bee yacht or some shit. So my whole like brainstorm earlier of like bee neighborhoods isn't going to be helpful going on. No. Oh. There's not going to be any China bee town or something. I was trying to come up with something better than that, but that's all I got. Tribeca. 30 Tri-Bica. Bee Street. Yeah. No B Street. Well, I guess it'd have to be more specific, but yeah, whatever. You get the point. The whole point here is that this diversity allows these bees to have these specializations because of the genetics from the fathers. There's been evidence even showing that the greater diversity, meaning the more sperm and the more diversity from those drones that she mated with, 
significantly improves resistance to things like parasites and viruses. So even when it's not necessarily from a drone from one of those really good hives? Yeah, even then, that I mean, it, it impacts it, but not significantly as much as just the diversity itself. So this diversity, the skills division, and the resistance to various viruses and parasites all are uh, tied up in this idea of that polyandry, right? And the bees have evolved to make sure this diversity of genetics happens by basically forcing inbred colonies to nuke themselves because of that direct linkage through the drones where you're you're taking that haploid and diploid, basically the same genetics and smashing them back together. So is it intentional or just because of that lack of diversity causing biological issues like royal inbreeding typically does? Oh man, do bees get that like, um, that really fucked up like Habsburg jaw that like those like royal families had? Oh yes, that? Yeah. Talk about that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. No, I, I don't think... I mean, it it could. I've I've never seen. I mean, I I imagine they probably exist, like pictures of inbred bees, because obviously those hives nuke themselves and then like have health issues. But this whole idea of diversity is really important because it has major implications for how we breed bees. So we know that fertilized eggs create worker female bees, and unfertilized eggs create drones, right? But this isn't always the case. If you look in a healthy beehive and look at all the capped comb, in the mix of the bee larvae, you'll always see some random empty cells. Well, they weren't always empty. The larvae were eaten by the other bees. For a while, researchers thought this was just some like weird phenomenon, but we now know that the larvae were uh, diploid drones, which if males are typically haploid, seems like it might be a problem, right? Well, this is a byproduct of inbred genetics. Basically, the funnel of genetic diversity that natural selection takes in keeping only the survival of the fittest when paired with a small genetic diversity, uh, say an isolated cluster of different colonies that can only breed with one another, will increase the likelihood of these diploid drones, which are basically when queens breed with their son brother things. And it has an amplifying effect, meaning very quickly a few diploids can turn into what's called a shotgun effect in honeycomb, where up to 60% of cells have these cannibalized diploid drone larvae. Sounds like sustainable bee farming of soil and beans to me. They're growing their own food. God, that's, that's dark. Even for us. God, I'm so disappointed in you. I mean, I thought it was funny. But yeah, <laughs> so, it, <laughs> so it takes like um, basically these poison pill genetics and it's, it's going to scatter it throughout the hive because the chance of those genetics being repeated again and again and again is coming up with these mates. Basically. So natural selection wipes these, eyes, uh, these bees out pretty quickly. But that raises a really interesting question about what happens when like a beekeeper who can you know, keep them alive through a bunch of tools and chemicals and things like that keeps these weak, isolated beehives alive longer than they should be. Well, I mentioned earlier that bee genetics are not as simple as, say, traditional genetics where we can see those recessive traits and uh, so on. And also, they don't have the benefits of diversity with those different skill sets where they get a chance to shine in the life cycle of a bee, like the other hives. Exactly. So let's, uh, let's focus on how this plays out in like an apiary. The first and most obvious thing is that inbred bees that are kept alive are a bad thing, right? The second fact is that a study in the 60s highlighted that bees not only respond to their environmental conditions, but they also quickly develop what's called ecotypes or regionally appropriate 
distinctions that try to predict things like big nectar flows based on what trees and species are in that area, including things like being able to actually show that certain hives from a region have population peaks that are significantly different than hives maybe 100 miles away based on major flows of honey. Okay, so local bees are a good thing. I mean, that's not surprising, even though at first it might seem like a bad thing given the diversity issue we just talked about. Yeah, that's that's pretty correct. The idea of ecotypes obviously isn't unique to bees. When we lose this ecotype variety that's very specifically survived because of its adaptation for a climate, the term used is outbreeding depression, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Bringing in new genetics is often good, but not when species become like highly specialized and almost like they're becoming a new subspecies. And what do you know? That's basically like the whole idea of complex systems. Things find their niche and become highly specialized, and when they lose that specialization, they're less efficient and basically fit poorly into the system and are forced to change or adapt. And this can be proven with uh, like using isozyme studies, which show that different geographic latitudes favor different enzyme variants. There's even genomic studies showing different favored alleles on different continents. So if we can show that it exists biologically, can we breed for it? In a sense, yeah, but we don't. And not only do we not allow our bees to have to survive based on their own strengths, but we order our bees from a handful of places, most often not locally or even a similar climate. So the idea of an ecotype bee for our region is basically impossible without starting a small apiary, again, thinking about that diversity you need, and also expecting to lose like 90% of your hives in the first five years. Yeah, would it really be that bad? So in Sweden, we'll, we'll actually cover this in a lot more detail in uh, some upcoming episodes. But just for an example, for a cold climate, in Sweden in the early 2000s, 150 hives were left to fend for themselves and eight still survived five years later. But then those bees and their genetics continued to survive, creating the early stages of a varroa-resistant ecotype for that climate. Okay, so with less than 10% survival, where does the genetic bottleneck fit into all of this? Because that sounds pretty familiar in how like these populations go totally extinct. Even though it does bottleneck in a sense because of the way the genes are uh, expressing themselves because of the unique conditions, at least to this point, and you know, we could we might be saying something different 20 years from now, there does seem to be a fair amount of diversity. Although, again, there's also the question of like, how long can those genetics stay isolated before there's issues? So if we want honey in the future, we basically have to accept that 95% of our beehives have to die first. Otherwise, the genes from the weak hives are going to continue on? Well, yes and no. And that's the first yes and no of the episode, listeners. I guess, but we had a Beyonce butt in there earlier. So yeah. it's like one and a half? One and a half, yeah. And um, that was a big butt, to be fair. So it might be like one and three quarters. Damn you, man. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. So yeah, th that idea at 90%, right? That That's really hard to accept as like a beekeeper. Not just because you care about them, but also because like bees are really expensive. And uh, it's not also entirely true. Like I said, Sweden is kind of a unique climate. Nature obviously doesn't want to die despite our best efforts or bees, honeybees would have been gone by now. Genetic sequencing has actually even shown that many of the land race, as we'll call them, honeybees in places like the UK, have not only been able to mostly survive despite being basically abandoned and dealing with all the same chemicals that have been sprayed in those areas, 
but they're continuing to impact the foreign genetics that are brought into the island. I mean, I, th- I think that makes sense in a way. They've developed for the climate, so they're likely to survive and ultimately breed with non-natives, introducing their own genetics into lines that end up more likely to survive because they have those unique traits. Yeah, in some cases, the native bees actually overtook like 99% of the genetics of imported bees in their hives. I mean, that is literally dominant genes. Yeah, that that is ballin. Ballin, get it? Like balls, semen? Come on. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. I thought you were trying to go off pollen. Oh, yeah, that no, would have been no, good, too. He, he was talking about fucking. Yeah, <laughs> you know, how those genetics are spread, as one might say. So I, I think that's really, you know, despite all the, the negativity we've covered so far in this episode, it's kind of optimistic, right? The big thing I think we really need to take away from it is that we just need to stop getting in the way. And I think, like... That's a pretty good framework for bee genetics. That's more than I've ever learned in any bee class I've ever taken, including the bee classes I've taught at community college. So, like, this has been really interesting. I had a ton of fun kind of digging into some of the stuff I'd heard about and knew a bit about, but didn't have the full story of. Uh, And I think that's about everything that I wanted to cover. So, uh, you guys have anything? Uh, Pretty good dinner, thanks. I meant, like, bee-related. It was honey ham. Okay. I think we're done. Wait, wait, wait. I think I want to hear more about this. Okay, so basically was from the no, pigs Dom. on the farm, and then it was like Dom, a local hit the honey, music. and it was really good. So, yeah. Yeah, and there, there was some like, vegetables from the farm. Pretty good. That sounds really good. I actually haven't eaten yet. I'm hungry as fuck. Yeah, no way I'm eating honey ham tonight. Eating a single like brat and some like dry rice you think i got these muscles oh oh my god i'm still recording